Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is an academic, author and writer who specialises in race relations, social cohesion and public security. His recently published book, Beyond Grievance, What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities, was published in June 2023 and is the reason why we're speaking today, although I've known about this guest work prior to that for a long time. Dr. Rakib Hassan holds a BA in Politics and International Relations an MSc in Democracy, Politics and Governance, and a PhD in Political Science, all obtained from Royal Holloway University of London. His PhD thesis, which was comprehensively sponsored by the Economic and Social Research Council, investigated the impact of social integration on the public attitudes of British non-white ethnic minorities. He has worked as a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and a senior data analyst at the Centre for Social Justice. Rakib has also produced work for think tanks such as Policy Exchange, the Runnymede Trust and Intergenerational Foundation. He is currently a columnist Spiked magazine and is a regular contributor for Mail Plus and The Telegraph and has also written for The Independent, The Jewish Chronicle, Unheard, The Times Red Box and Cap X. He's also dabbled in broadcast work with regular appearances on GB News and Talk TV, as well as occasional features on Sky News, BBC Newsnight, BBC Sunday Morning Live and ITV's Good Morning Britain. He has also made radio appearances for stations such as LBC, Times Radio, BBC Radio 5 Live, BBC Radio London and BBC Radio Asian Network. So definitely a lot. In this episode, we discuss his academic journey and how he's got to where he is today a deep dive into the key themes of his book through a mental health lens, including family, race and faith. For Rakib's mental health, we discuss the importance that his family background and upbringing had on him, as well as the power of his Muslim faith in shaping his life, values and ethics. So this is how my conversation with Dr. Rakib Esan went. Dr. Akiba San, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you, mate. I loved your book. It's got as many, um, shall we say, truth-laced, spicy takes as it has some pretty conventional ones that for some reason people don't want to talk about. How are you, mate? And what has the feedback been to it so far before we dive into your academic journey? Yeah, firstly, Freddie, thank you for having me. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today. When you told me that you wanted to explore the sort of mental health element of the book, which very much taps into concepts of optimism, resilience, determination, some of the themes we'll be talking about later on, how family can be such a vital source of social security, and how faith can provide individuals with that feeling of rootedness and belonging, which can very much provide a positive impact on one's well-being. I think that the moment we talked about these themes in our sort of preliminary conversations, mm-hmm. I thought that this is something that I'd be delighted to tuck into with you. Excellent, mate. I'm really pleased to hear that. We've got loads to talk about. I've got a very long running order. I'm going to try and get through this as quickly as we can. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? No, absolutely, mate. Let's crack on. Let's start your pod by talking about your academic journey, Rocky, before we move on to your book. So firstly, tell me how and why you got into it, what inspired you and the journey to where you are today? Well, mate, I'd always say that I'm a bit of a curious character. Um, (laughs) I I think that you can learn about all sorts of things until, you know, the day you take your last breath. If truth be told, that I have that kind of approach to education. I think that in terms of my specialism, which as you know, is in the sort of social cohesion, race relations, public security space. I know my fair share, but even in those areas, I'm learning on a daily basis. And I like hearing different perspectives uh, as well. 
I think in terms of my own academic journey, I'd say that I belong to a family that takes education very seriously. Educational advancement and academic excellence mm. is seen as a way of laying the foundations for long-term financial security and economic well-being. So naturally, I love school. I love studying hard, but I thought that I belonged to a school, a state school here in Luton, which was incredibly mixed in terms of racial identity, ethnic background and religious affiliation. I thrived on that, uh, if truth be told. And I think that when you look later on in my life in terms of university, I did my degree, master's and PhD all at the same institution, Royal Holloway University of London. And I think in a way, if I talk about my own personal well-being, I try to be adaptable, Freddie, mm-hmm. but I like stability and continuity and I enjoy familiarity. The politics department there, I started there as a 19-year-old and I left as a 28-year-old man. <laughs> and I think that that was such a, you know, that particular department is it's such an important part of my life story. Mm. So I think that when it comes to well-being, of course, listen, I think that we live in a modern and dynamic society and a market economy which can be quite volatile and unpredictable. And I think in that way, I, I do thrive on the sense of that unpredictability. But I think in a way, if there's as many things as possible in your life which are familiar to you, which are stable, that helps you deal with that volatility and unpredictability, if that makes sense. So I think more generally in academic sense, you can see that in my, in my academic journey, staying at the same university as long as I did, I value stability. And I think in a way, when when moving in the later stages of life after that, sort of my post-PhD life, you could say, I very much settled into the sort of think tank space in the Westminster bubble. There's a lot that happens there, mate. Um, but but <laughs> yes, I, I, I know about that, mate, 100%. <laughs> but yeah, I think the one thing, and I'm sure this is something we're going to tuck into in greater detail as the conversation progresses. But the one constant I've had in my life is that belonging to such a stable, loving and affectionate family. And I think that when you have that kind of background and you have that source of rootedness, it allows you to deal with many things in life, mm. I think. And, and, and I think that it's, it's really helped me in terms of my own personal progression to have such a supportive family, which is such a wonderful source of encouragement as well. Let's talk about the book now. I loved it. Sure. It was a brilliant book. And I want to ask this first question in two parts. So first of all, how and why were you obviously inspired to mm. write the book and, and tackle the topics which we're going to talk about? And second of all, reading the book, do you wish the title had been What the Left Gets Wrong About Me as much as the What the Left Gets Wrong About Race? Mate, I'd never be so egocentric <laughs> to, to, to give the book that title. Um, it feels like that, though. It feels like you're writing from a sense that what they get wrong about you as well, as much as it does about other ethnic minority backgrounds who don't share that viewpoint. I'd like to think that in the book I didn't indulge in myself too much no of course Um, not not. you know but I think naturally yeah I I mean I do talk a little bit about the book how I'm from a traditional labour voting predominantly working class town in Luton and in my view I think some of the most wonderful family oriented community spirited people I've ever come across in my life are in my hometown but I think in terms of the book itself what inspired me or what motivated me to write the book There are liberal left narratives when it comes to, if you could call it more broadly, ethnic minority life, because something I talk about in the book is that great deal of diversity of views and opinions within the broader ethnic minority population and the differences between the various ethnic minority communities. If you you just take the ethnic minority population more broadly, the reality on the ground is far more positive than what is often portrayed. So I talk a great deal about ethnic minority success in modern day Britain, which for all its flaws, I think is a country that does offer those opportunities, freedoms and protections to allow ethnic minorities to thrive and fulfil their potential, especially when you compare the environment in other countries, including France, Mm. which we saw very recently, the French riots, large scale public disorder across many French cities. But I also think that there's a big discussion that I have in my book about family and faith and how they can be sources of support, encouragement, and when it comes to faith, how that can be a source of optimism and resilience in terms of helping you deal with the everyday challenges of life. And and I think that sharply contrasts from this grossly inaccurate caricature of British ethnic minorities being downtrodden, being disaffected, 
this kind of homogenous, monolithic block, which is very much alienated from their public institutions and their country more generally. So I really wanted to tackle that because if you're talking more generally about mental well-being, there's data that I've come across in the past, Freddie, and I'm sure you're aware of it, when it comes to suicide attempts, suicide ideation, and then you talk about acts of self-harm as well. Those rates are actually higher in the white British mainstream Mm -hmm. compared to ethnic minority communities. And I just think that, as you know, in the book, there's a lot of talk about these white privilege theories, which are being imported from the United States, looking at a variety of social and economic problems through the prism of race. I think that you're missing a big picture and the variety of social, cultural and economic factors that come into play, which shapes one's personal well-being. So those are the kind of things that really motivate me to write the book, to really tackle those myths, shatter them, and provide us with a sense of direction in terms of what we really need to be looking at, um, especially when it comes to young people's development in modern-day Britain. We're going to come to white privilege in a second, but one thing which you covered, and one thing I do want to talk about, is this idea that racial groups are never monolithic. And I never talk Mm. about a racial group as being monolithic or holding one particular viewpoint because I just feel like it's racist, first of all. So (laughs) I I tend to avoid that. But also with your own personal experiences, being someone from an ethnic minority, but is a commentator on these issues. One shocking thing that I find, and it's happened very recently, if you've probably seen the news, is that Mm. some ethnic minority commentators still feel comfortable accusing other commentators of being race traitors, in essence. Mm. Can you just give my listeners some examples of that and how problematic that still is in 2023? How are we still in this position? Uh, It's hugely problematic. There's many labels, as you say, race traitor, turncoat Mm -hmm. colour is another one. There's one beginning with U and T, which I won't use. There's a variety of racially motivated slurs, which tend to be directed towards ethnic minority, non-white authors who reject this politics of grievance and victimhood that I tackle in my own book. It's proving your point, mate, do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, and I think that in a sense it, it really lowers the tone of the race relations debate. It really undermines the quality of that conversation that we do need to have in this country. For me, I think that much of the discourse surrounding race, especially with the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the UK, following the police killing of George Floyd in the US state of Minnesota, I think it's been hugely problematic. I think when we talk about race relations, one aspect or rather one element of it, which is overlooked, is the degree of intra-black animosity. And what I mean by that is racially motivated slurs exchanged within the black British population. And, And I think that gets, because quite often when you think about race relations, you just think about black and white, really. I think many people do that. No one seems to think, think about Caribbean versus African, which is like a tale as old as uh, like the last 100 years when it comes to class. Uh, <laughs> and on top of that, Freddie, you know, there's a great deal of diversity within the black African exactly, population. Exactly, of course. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there can be many differences between an established migrant of West African Christian. Sub-Saharan, North African, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. compared to uh, maybe perhaps a, a more recently arrived refugee from Somalia who follows Islam. So what I really do is trying to tease out these differences. But more generally, what I do say in the book is that there are certain values and beliefs that are shared by many ethnic minorities. And one quite clearly is that Britain, for all its flaws, and I'd like to think that I don't look at my own country through rose-tinted spectacles, to live as a member of a minority, Britain is a far better place to live when it compares to other countries such as France, Germany. I'd include the United States in Spain. that as well. Well, Spain, I mean, if you want to go Spain Spain's and got Italy, big, Spain and Italy got big problems. problems. Huge problems. And I think that... You know, listen, we both like our football. If you just look at the response of the (laughs) Spanish footballing authorities to the level of racism that Vinicius Jr., Brazilian international, faced when he was playing for Real Madrid against Valencia, you would never get that kind of response from the English footballing authorities if something like that took place in England. And thankfully, compared to back in the day, it's a rarity that that sort of episode taking place in England. So I think that those arguments, they are important to make. And and I think when you're looking at the phenomenon of racism more generally, I think it's the kind of things I talk about in my book, that we have to talk about tensions between ethnic and religious minorities, especially after what we Mm. saw last year uh, with the Leicester Leicester disorders, which was primarily between 
Hindu and Muslim youths of South Asian heritage. And I do think that the rise of BLM, when we, we saw that period where I think there was a great deal of intra-black animosity, and I think that really needs to be tackled. And I think we've even see, we've seen things like Rupa Huck, who referred to quasi-quoting as superficially black, maybe because of his speaking style or the fact that he had a private education. And I think we really need to get away from that kind of discourse, because I think actually what it does, it undermines our reputation for being a fairly successful multiracial democracy. Every claim that you make in your book, as spicy as it is, are always backed up by evidence and statistics. Mm. And the most uncomfortable part of the book, I think most normies in quotation marks would have to confront is when you relate family to race. The statistic that the ONS or the Office for National Statistics find that 63% of British Caribbean children up to the age of 15 come from a single parent household. I think we can probably safely assume that the majority or overwhelming majority will be mothers in that sense. So if mm. those facts are taboo to say, are the mental health consequences? Well, I think that's the point and that there will be mental health consequences to those alarming stats that you mentioned. When it comes to lone parent households, and I, and I make this point very clearly in the yes. book, that there are many single mothers in the country who do a fantastic job in terms of providing the best upbringing they can for their mm. children. I directly target what I call feckless, commitment-phobic men who have a habit of fathering children, but they have no real interest in being a proper father, a responsible yeah. male role model in the household. But I think that the stat that you mentioned there in regards to British Black Caribbean children up to the age of 15 years, 63% living in a lone parent household. That's massive, mate. Massive. It, it, it's a real problem, especially when you compare it to their Indian heritage peers. The corresponding figure is only 6%, which is why ultimately I thought that the BAME acronym is so utterly hopeless, mate. I mean, <laughs> these are two communities that both would fall within that BAME acronym and this, this ridiculous umbrella term. And I think we do have to be honest about the mental health consequences and also that sense of belonging. I think that if you come from a household, and especially if you're a young lad, and if there's not a responsible male role model there to keep you on the straight and narrow mm. and provide you with that, with that sense of self, well, tries to instill that sense of self-discipline within you, that can be hugely problematic. You may seek that sense of belonging elsewhere and that can often take you in very dark paths. So I think that the discussion that I articulate in the book, the point that I make is that if you don't have that sense of belonging in the household, then perhaps you may well find it through gang membership, which to yeah. be quite honest, is not the kind of sense of belonging that we should be promoting. And in turn, once you're part of a gang, especially if you're a, a sort of fairly new, younger member of the gang, that really does heighten the risk of being drawn into various forms of criminality and then being involved in the criminal justice system. And I think more generally that, that there's a variety of research, Freddie, which shows that when it comes to things like life satisfaction, that children in two-parent households tend to fare better on those kind of mental well-being indicators compared to their counterparts in lone parent households. Now, that's not to say that it's a guarantee that you're going to have a wonderful life and you're going to be... Um, no, because domestic abuse exists and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. But ultimately, what I talk about in the book is which family models, what are those social models most strongly associated with positive youth outcomes? And I think that's the debate we need to be at. We need to be honest and we have to say that there's certain models, certain frameworks, social frameworks, if you can call it that, which are not as strongly associated with positive youth outcomes, whether that might be the level of school attainment, cognitive development, physical health, mental well-being, then later on in life, labour market integration, or whether or not you're involved with the criminal justice system. And I think that we need to have these conversations if we want to have a serious and effective social policy agenda for modern Britain. Let's talk briefly again about white privilege here, because you make the distinction between two concepts in, in relation to it, which is equity and equality of opportunity. Mm. Now, my personal opinion is more towards the latter, and I'm sure you share that opinion too. But just explain that for the listeners. And you claim that parts of the left frame it as disparities equals mm. discrimination. So why is that wrong for you? And what are the mental health consequences? Oh, mate, it's completely wrong. Because if you're looking at a lot of the disparities that we're referring to, social class comes into it as we've talked about a lot already the role of family structure 
the well-being of one's neighbourhood um, mm. in terms of how trusting people are within that particular And pride in it as well and, and, pr- and wanting pride, to stay in it. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Civic pride is, is, a, is a very big factor in that. I think even geography, some parts of the country, Freddie, as you know, are incredibly isolated. We have this, this idea that we have a modern dynamic economy, but not everyone's part of it. And I'm thinking about quite, uh, quite desolate, isolated coastal towns in the country you know we talk about this digital economy i mean the level of digitalization in those in those neck of the woods is is minimal and i also think about many rural areas in parts of southwest england we think of southwest england as being so beautiful idyllic and all the rest of it and many parts are but many parts are quite deprived pretty and they simply they're not part of the technologically advanced economy that we have as a country so I think all of these factors come into play. And I think that when we're looking at disparities as well, this is why I really, I'm very much against these, what I call pseudo-intellectual white privilege theories. Because how useful are those theories when it comes to understanding educational outcomes? Where we're we know pushed that, by white people as well. Yeah, we, we have, <laughs> we'll come on to that in a bit, mate. You know, where white working class lads are lagging behind many groups at school Mm. and as you say many of these theories are pushed by what i consider to be fairly mediocre white british so-called liberal progressives perhaps they're insecure in their own status of privilege Mm. so now they want to cosplay (laughs) as social justice warriors that's why a lot of them Uh, went to private school (laughs) i think that maybe these sort of white privilege theories they're used as an instrument to deflect attention away from their own privileged uh, socioeconomic status but some of them they really want to feel like they are these very active warriors you know, in terms of really bringing about meaningful social change. They're not. They're really not. And many of them want to offer this paternalistic allyship to ethnic minorities, many of whom are far more successful than they'll ever be. So I think they're a very confused bunch. And I don't think they're particularly helpful, when it, especially when it comes to their contributions in terms of how we understand social and economic disparities in modern-day Britain. Let's talk about the family now. So I want to briefly talk about the single parent issue again because you mentioned a report by Dame Rachel D'Souza which seemed really important in the books just tell me and the listeners what that found and what it says about the current state of the country and the potential mental health impact as well yeah I mean I think that that particular report was produced by in my view a fantastic woman who, who has history of being an educationalist in my hometown of Luton and, and I think that this particular report what it found what she said was that ultimately the family, if I just put in my own words, mm-hmm. really what it does, it offers a shield. A stable family unit offers a shield to life's challenges. But she did very clearly make the point that family stability is a real positive when it comes to educational progress and also further down the line when it comes to making headway in our labour market, which, as you know, is an incredibly competitive labour market and a very flexible one as well. And I think this report, in a sense, it is is such a positive contribution to these ongoing debates, where all too often family structure is left by the wayside in terms of its importance when it comes to youth outcomes. And and I think that when we're talking about mental well-being more generally, now listen, I'm not going to be in the business of romanticising two-parent households. There can be various forms of domestic abuse which can take place in a household with that structure. But I think we're being really honest when it comes to mental well-being, cognitive development, physical health. We just have to be honest with ourselves. There's certain family structures which are more strongly associated with positive outcomes on those fronts for young people when compared to other family structures. And I think that when it comes to sort of family and community dynamics, they might not sound as fashionable, as culturally fashionable when compared to talking about race. But the reality is, if if we continue to overlook those factors, and it's something that Dame Rachel is not remotely interested in at all, in terms of leaving them by the wayside, she's very much placed those factors at the heart and centre of many discussions she's had of late. I think that if we take her lead and we show more courage in terms of emphasising those factors, I think that the country will be better for it in the long term. When it comes to people actually having families and starting families, Ricky, Mm. you and me both know that the environment right now is very difficult. Very difficult. 
there are multiple factors at play. There's a cost of living crisis, there's a housing crisis, there's inflation. And that's before you take into account that women are delaying the family for mm. a few more years than they're used to. And there's many different reasons and a whole different podcast we can go into about that. However, when I wrote this, <laughs> I kind of predicted the future a little bit. And when I wrote this running order, because my next question is about the recent debate over the government's announcement on provision of childcare for a year state's mm. children, and particularly the debate that's now come up about the two-child benefit. Mm. So I'm one of four, and I remember asking my mum and dad about this quite a few months ago, actually, and they were open to say if we hadn't have had the two-plus benefit in place, it might have affected how we had more kids. So there are many prominent conservative lawmakers and conservative commentators who talk about the importance of the family and the foundation of the family and how we should be supporting more people start one. However, many critics would point to the ending of that two-child benefit cap the lack of paternity leave for young fathers and the lack of support mm. for families navigating all of these myriad of issues. What is your perspective on it? What needs to change? Well, I think that firstly, we need to look at various areas of public policy through the lens of family. And, and I think that in my view, for far too long, family has almost been a non-topic in our politics ready. And you're right. You're right to talk about the cost of living crisis, the harsh economic environment. We live in a country where there's a backlog of 4.3 million homes. We have a very serious housing crisis. And what's very interesting, when you look at the five main pledges made by the prime minister and the leader of the opposition, there's not a single one which specifically refers to housing, which I think says it all. I think that much of the country is paralysed by what I consider to be nimbyist forces (laughs) who are incredibly obstructionist. You can't Uh, be on this abandoned parking lot. (laughs) uh, I think it's a very serious problem, but I think also, Fred, we need to have a discussion about how the country's changed culturally. I think that in recent times, has there been an individualisation of our values and our perception of life? Quite possibly. Individual freedom has to come at a price if you want to start your own family. And there has to be that spirit of self-sacrifice. I think that marriage, is there a tendency of some people to look at marriage in terms of what they can take out of it as opposed to what they can provide and give? That's a discussion that we need to have. So I think that even if you were to look at these issues and you talk about the child benefit cap to children, my understanding is that Sakir Starmer isn't looking to scrap That's that correct. Cap. At the moment, um, yes. That's at the, what you at said the moment. And I think that we, we do need to have a debate in terms of do we want pro-natalist social policies? Hungry have it, but they don't have very good gay rights. <laughs> I, I think that what we need to have a look at is what kind of country do we want? For me, I think that for far too long, we've had this issue, particularly in the mainstream, I mean, in my view, Freddie, where there's been these materialistic, individualistic values, and you combine that with this as a sort of rapid secularization of the mainstream. These are the kind of values that don't necessarily encourage family building, if truth be told, Freddie. And I think on top of that, when you have a economic and social system, which is as harsh as ours, especially mm. when we're talking about family-friendly rights, to what extent does the British worker benefit from that? compared to their European counterparts. This is where I think there's actually many European countries that fare much better. 100%. I think that when it it comes to employment rights, I think even when it comes to housing, I think they do tend to look at those issues through the prism of family compared to us. And I think that's largely because we have this, what I call this sort of Anglo-Saxon capitalist model which differs from a sort of a continental social market yeah, economy. Yeah, egalitarian, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and I, th- I think that, that is problematic. But I think, Freddie, as I said, even if we make serious improvements or we move things in a more family-oriented direction in various areas of public policy, we have to look at values. We do have to look at values in terms of how people value the institution of marriage, how they view marriage in terms of something that they can contribute towards, not just something mm. that they can take out of. I think having children is it's not just a matter of just having a cute accessory for the first few years. It's, it's a very serious job in itself, right? It's a big sacrifice. People don't it's want to make that sacrifice big, anymore as much. Yeah. Exactly. So I think you have to be honest about the degree of self-sacrifice which is involved. But for me, I, I look at it differently. There's a great, great degree of pride to be had in terms of nurturing the next generation into being contributory, honest, trustworthy citizens. So in that sense, it's building your own family. I think I would make this point that it can help you a great deal privately, especially in old age. I think to have that social support network 
is, is very important. But it's also a public act, mate. I think mm. that's the point that I'd make. So we need to have a discussion about, of course, we have to have a discussion in terms of how we implement social policies. But we also have to talk about the kind of values which prevail in the mainstream. And I think we have to have a very honest conversation about that. You spoke there about the rapid secularisation of the mainstream, and that brings us nicely on to my next topic, which is faith. And you did some research on people's life satisfaction who have a faith versus those without a faith by anthropologist Robin Dunbar. So just tell me about that and just your wider perspective on how faith and organised religion can help someone or anyone's mental well-being well mate once again i wouldn't be in the business of romanticizing faith and religion i think that's something that i don't know the podcast either mate just say yeah (laughs) absolutely and i think that's a point that i make in the book and as you know freddie i've got a counter extremism background so i know perfectly well how religiously inspired ideologies they can play their part in wreaking havoc quite frankly and, and and we've experienced that as a country as we've talked about already in this conversation the sort of subcontinental style sectarianism which spilled mm. out in a regional English city like Leicester. That was around the same time that the late Queen Elizabeth II passed away. I think so, um, yeah. As, as well. So I really wouldn't be in the business of romanticising this particular issue. But what I talk about is on the left, there can be more of an effort to cultivate a shared appreciation of faith. And what I mean by that is how faith can provide a sense of optimism especially when life can be extremely challenging it can be tough not every single day you're going to be feeling 100 percent. that's the truth of it and faith can provide that sense of belonging especially through religious civic associations one's relationship with their faith that spirituality it can really can provide the, the sort of feeling of yes I can actually tackle these challenges I will be able to tackle them head on and that belief that better times are ahead around the corner I also think that many people that their family oriented values are derived from their faith and their belief system so I think that's what I was referring to in the book really and and it, it didn't really come as any surprise to me in my own personal research that people with a stronger religious identity are more likely to report positive life satisfaction while people with no religious affiliation are far less likely to do so. And that's controlling for a range of socio-demographic characteristics. And I think that's largely because, you know, the sense that one's religion, their faith system, if you could call it that, it can provide them with that sense of belonging, contentment, being appreciative of what you have in life. But also, if you're part of a religious community, if you could call it that, that sense of rootedness, that social interaction, We live in a country where I do think social isolation is a problem, loneliness Mm. among the elderly, but more generally that intergenerational disconnection between young and old. That's very much a problem in many parts of the country. So, yeah, while I'm not in the business of romanticising the role of religion, faith and spirituality, I think that there can be more of a positive appreciation of that especially on the left, where I do think you do have this sort of sneering, radical, secular types, Mm. which think, oh, you know, silly, you know, this is all mythical nonsense. I think that kind of attitude is quite unhelpful, especially if the left is looking to re-engage with more traditional-minded voters who may be gravitating towards the Tories, even though at the moment I don't think many people are gravitating towards the Conservative Party at the moment. But I think that that would help shore up that relationship. The final topic I want to talk about is education, and you are one of the few authors who's been brave enough to state that when it comes to children, it's Mm. actually working class white kids who are struggling Mm. quite a lot right now. Two groups which are doing really well are British African second generation immigrant children and Chinese children. They're doing really well and in adulthood, I might say. So just paint this picture. And also, she's been in the news recently, but you quoted her in the book, Catherine Burblesing. Just tell me about your perspective on her and, and the work that she's done. Oh, I think that what Catherine Bovar Singh, the work that she has done with Michaela School, Wembley-based school, which is incredibly diverse. Um, Northwest you know, London, for people who don't know. Yeah, yeah, predominantly working class area of Northwest London. A fantastic work. But what she's doing there, she, she's instilling conservative values within that school. You know, very strong emphasis on hard work, self-discipline, good manners, emphasising the positive role of structure and routine. It seems that it angers many liberal left progressives, so-called progressives. It really shouldn't. And this is a school which had the highest progress eight score in the whole of the country. How people can be so upset with this 
uh, if they're interested in young people's progress is astonishing. And I think that's largely because she's proving the value of these quietly traditional values. She's putting them in practice. She's putting them in action. And she's delivering the goods through her robust conservative leadership. And I think more generally, if you want to make headway in life, this is what I say in the book, progressivism needs conservatism. If you really want young people to make progress, there has to be a degree of conservatism um, involved in that. So I talk a great deal about family stability, the importance of discipline. Now, uh, listen, when it comes to parent-child relationships, I don't think there's any harm in a kid looking at their parent as their best friend. You hear that quite often. I, I'm not in favour of that, but yeah, I, I but, can see the yeah, argument, sure. But, but the point is, if that's a friendship that you value, that has to be from a position of respecting your yes. parents, <laughs> understanding that there's a degree of order and hierarchy and authority. involved in that. Yeah. And authority, absolutely. One of my favourite words, Freddie. You know, I'm not afraid to say that. And I would say that, for example, my mum, she, she, she's a fantastic support of love, support and encouragement. Yes, I would say she's my best friend. I, I, there's no one else in the world that I trust more than her. But it's coming from a position that she is order, it's hierarchy, mm. it's authority. It's that sense of understanding that within our family unit, there is that hierarchy which exists. There has to be that sense that there's a reason why I respect her. She's my mother. She has far more life experience than me as well. This is a woman who lived through the 1971 Liberation War back in Bangladesh as a four-year-old. So uh, my view is that I think if it becomes a bit too friendly, <laughs> if, if you put it that yes. way, it becomes yeah. too friendly and too, too cuddly, then I do think that some young people may take liberties Yes, uh, with, with that sense. They would, and of I course they would. In that situation, parental control and assertiveness, and I think that is required to a degree when it comes to young people's progress and keeping them the straight and narrow, that gets watered down, Freddie. And I don't think that's in, that's entirely useful. So, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I think when you're looking at an individual like Catherine Barbal Singh, in my view, she's a fantastic British story of mm-hmm. success and achievement. She has a very strong Commonwealth background. So for me, I I find it really puzzling. And I think that it's because there's many people on the liberal left, Freddie, they believe in these values such as innovation, creativity, young people's freedom. And I think that can be a part of the debate when we're talking about youth progress. But the point is, I think if you really want to unlock the potential of young people well and truly, you have to understand there has to be a degree of order. Boundaries, there, to yeah. be, there have to be boundaries and there has to be an element of discipline, mate. Because mm. I think without those things, I think that you lose that sense of direction, that mm. purpose, that routine, which allows young people to flourish and flourish in potentially in creative directions as well. But mm. there has to be that base. There has to be that foundation. And there has to be that structure, in my view. One thing I found very interesting is that her motto a school motto is work hard, be kind. And in the book, you say it was accused by a journalist of asking black kids to be subservient in essence. However, my friend and friend of the pod, educating Yorkshire's Mr. Burton has practically the same motto at his school of work hard, be nice. He doesn't ever face the same accusations. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder why. <laughs> I think it's such a simple motto, which, which could serve many people well, mate. You just work hard and be kind. And, and, and I think that... There's this view that rebelliousness and behaving in an unruly fashion, this is seen as almost nowadays as as a sign of maturity among some people. And I think it's absolutely bizarre, mate. That's not to say that people in school, you should encourage critical thought. I've always said that, mate. And and I think that there's many, you know, with my academic background, they're long-standing theories which ought to be challenged. For example, they might be outdated when it comes to understanding our modern world. I wouldn't want to suppress that in the slightest. But what I do think is that in terms of critical thought, that requires you to exercise a degree of self-discipline in terms of really scrutinising that theory, really look into it, picking out its strengths and its weaknesses. And I think that the issue there is that people are saying, oh, you know, these kind of mottos, institutions such as the Michaela School, they're encouraging people just to be, you know, sort of unthinking students. That's not true. That's simply not the case. Otherwise, uh, all those aunties wouldn't send those kids there. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and I think that, yeah, I think it is good to question the world, but it's also good to understand that certain things have stood the test of time 
for a reason. And I think that to encourage forms of rebelliousness, unruly behaviour, being disrespectful towards authority, that's not right. And that won't serve any school well in this country. Something I found really interesting in our chat off air, mate, is you said in the book that British Chinese children with SEND or special educational needs and disabilities do better at GCSEs than some of their peers without SEND. That, for me, just blew my mind. Have you worked out how those children have managed to achieve that despite the neurological challenges or even behavioural challenges Mm. they're presented with? Well, I mean, I I think specifically it's Chinese heritage pupils receiving SEN-related support. Okay. So so they, on average, perform better in terms of attainment A, average scores, which is ultimately, it's a score calculated across eight GCSEs. Yes, the new school style, I never got that. Indeed. They're they're on average performing better than the entire population with no identified special education needs. And I just find that absolutely remarkable. I think cultural resilience comes into it. A lot Um, of tiger mums as well. (laughs) Well, absolutely. And listen, I think the parental discipline and also, in a sense, keeping a close eye on children in terms of trying to keep them distance from what they would consider to be unhealthy technological vices. influences yeah. and vices, if you put it that way. I think that sense of order really comes into play. And I think it's that belief that even though you, you require this support, this support is ultimately here to help you unlock your potential. Don't feel bad about receiving the support. Take this as a golden opportunity to really further yourself. And you may have certain personal issues that other people may not have but that doesn't mean that you are unable or that this should be such a significant barrier in terms of you progressing in life it's and a suspe- victim isn't it Back yeah to and, and yeah, i suspect yeah. that message is hammered home into mm. those pupils within their family structure within their sort of broader family dynamic you could say i think that really does count for a lot and as we know truthfully freddie there's other parts of the world People with special educational needs, not only are they given the support that they require in schools, many are ostracised. Many are um, institutionalised. So perhaps there's that view within those families that this kind of support is not readily available in many countries, perhaps in our own country of origin. And, and I think that cultivates maybe a sense of appreciation that you really want to make the most of this support and that you want to repay the people who are providing that support by delivering the goods when it comes to your exam results. I think it's a very wholesome philosophy, actually, that we're talking about here. One of resilience, determination, and in spite of perhaps having certain personal barriers, not to allow those barriers to dictate your life trajectory. I want to finish this deep dive by reading out a quote that you put at the end of the book. You say, Mm. the greatest shaper of life chances is not racial identity, ethnic Mm. origin or religious affiliation. It is one's family dynamics and the well-being of one's local neighbourhood. Mm. Is that the biggest lesson you want your readers to take from this book, Ricky? Uh, absolutely, 100%. I think that much of the doom and gloom racial grievance narratives, I think they're a genuine threat to the family itself, actually, because you have many parents and grandparents cultivating this message of optimism, resilience, determination, really making the most of yourself, making the most of the opportunities, freedoms and protections which are provided under modern British democracy. And then you have these uh, so-called social justice activists US saying that as well, uh, yeah. you, yeah. much of it American inspired me saying that our social, economic, political and cultural systems are deliberately rigged against young ethnic and racial minorities. That's not right, because what they're actually doing, they're undercutting the message of parents and grandparents in those family structures. Thankfully, they don't have that much influence, but I don't like that threat existing. I think that more generally, that along with family structure, I I talked a great deal about the level of social trust in a neighbourhood. I think that having that sense of belonging in your local community, in a way, it provides a healthy source of pressure. And and, uh, let me elaborate on this point, mate. I know what you mean. (laughs) When I was (laughs) growing up, you know, when you're part of that sort of tight-knit local community, you go down to the local Asian grocers, oh, Rakim, how are you doing at school? How are you doing with your results? You know, how are you progressing at university? You have elders in the community. They're asking you how you're doing in terms of work. Um, people talk. Know, <laughs> people talk. People talk. And, and I think for me, I, I take great pride in belonging to my family. I don't want to bring any shame to my family, Freddie. <laughs> I don't want to be the one going out there and saying, well, actually, I flunked those exams. I'm terrible. I'm a loser. You know, I haven't achieved much very recently. 
you know, if I have nothing to say in terms of my individual achievements, I don't think I'm a very good representative for my own family <laughs> that I care about a great deal. So I think that in a way, being part of a high trust neighbourhood, which takes an active interest in your own progression, it is a source of pressure, but I think you should welcome that pressure. Right. I think you should thrive on that pressure. So for me, I think being part of a stable family unit and being part of a local neighbourhood, which is high trust, attentive. OK, some people might say nosy, but it's better that they take an interest than being isolated mm. or feeling that no one really cares about your progression in your local community. I'd much rather prefer, you know, the, the kind of environment that I was raised in. I think those are very important life shapers. And I think we really need to get away from this obsession with race. And I think we really need to focus on what truly determines young people's outcomes and their progression later on in life. And as a final question, before we move on to briefly talk about your mental health journey, Rakib, what has the book and this wider academic journey taught you about yourself? I think what it's taught me is that it's very important to understand different perspectives in life. And I think it's important to also be very patient. I think when we live in a country as diverse as ours, and at least I went to an incredibly diverse university I think that, you know, later on in life, I've come across a diversity of peoples, especially in a working capacity. I think that's been understanding that now and then when you live in a country and a society as diverse as us, there's going to be cultural misunderstandings on the way. I think that what really counts for a lot, and I think, you know, as someone who comes from the social cohesion space, I think that patience counts for a lot mutual understanding. Well, I come from the position that people should be given the benefit of the doubt until they prove me wrong. I think that's the key thing. Very gracious uh, of you, mate. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, okay, sort of a hint of suspicion, that's absolutely fine. But I think that the key thing is you try to see the best in people, of course, until they prove you wrong. And I think that the one lesson that I, I really take from my life experiences and also my upbringing is irrespective of one's background to treat them with fairness, dignity and respect, unless they give you a reason for you not to provide those things. And, and, I, and I think that the central message of the book more generally is that there are a variety of ways that we can improve in the country in terms of equality of opportunities, social cohesion, trying to improve public confidence in, in, in a variety of state institutions and also in the, in the private sector. But more broadly, mate, we have a multiracial democracy to be proud of. We have a social responsibility to make that democracy even better. And I think that what we really need to get away from is this politics of grievance and victimhood. And what we need to have are mature conversations which help us implement collective practical action, which ultimately betters our country as a whole. We've talked all about Rakib the academic. Now let's go briefly and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. I ask all my special guests this question first. I know we don't have a lot of time. So just take me back to early life, teenagers, and were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Rakib we meet here? If we take it back a little bit, in terms of the town that I was raised in, it's pretty safe to say Luton doesn't have the greatest reputation nationally. But I think that's improving, especially with the promotion of the Hatters to the Premier League, which I'm looking forward to next season. <laughs> they have um, rescheduled their first home game, though, mate, I think. Oh, so <laughs> it's not going too well. <laughs> I, th I think that when we're looking at my upbringing, what took place in Luton when I was growing up, not always savoury, mate. We had the Butchers of Basra demonstrations mm -hmm. and then the subsequent formation of the English Defence League. So, Tommy uh, Robinson, uh, yeah. To yeah. To Tommy Robinson. Stephen Yaxley Lennon, you know, whatever he wants to call himself. I think that that was a pretty tense situation, I mean, truth be told. And I think as a patriotic British Muslim, there were times I felt sandwiched between the Islamists and the far right. But for me, I was raised in a family that really encouraged me to be confident in my own identity, whether that's my British national identity, you know, my cultural identity, my country of origin being Bangladesh. And I, and I think faith comes into that as well, for sure. And I think that what you have, you have very unhelpful identitarians on the left and right, and Islamists come into that as well. Mm -hmm. They portray these identities as zero sum. You know, if you're very proud of being British, you betrayed another element of your identity. Or if you're too embedded in this particular identity, or you take pride in this identity, you can't be truly British. You know, and, and I think in a way that really informed and motivated me to go in this sort of social cohesion space, which I've established a name for myself. 
in this particular area because I want to challenge those divisive narratives. Now, I think in terms of, you know, mental well-being, I think that the one thing that I'm incredibly grateful for and is something that I've touched upon already is being part of such a loving and stable family unit, which encouraged me to be confident and have that self-assured nature when it comes to my own personal being and identity. I went to school, which had fantastic teachers. I enjoyed working hard there. And I made a struck uh, many fantastic friendships. So I had that sense of rootedness and belonging. And I think that's very important for a young person's mental well-being. And I think just in terms of my personal story, you know, have I had challenges in life? Of course I have. I think everyone's had challenges in life. Some people have had far more serious challenges than others. I think I've, I've so far, aged 33 years, I've been very fortunate to live the life that I've had so far. But I think that when you're looking at one's personal experiences, I think the key thing for me, which has helped me a lot with my personal well-being, is knowing full well that there's many people in the country and in the world who are in a far less privileged position than I am. I'm incredibly grateful to be born and raised and live in a country which is relatively stable compared to many parts of the world. A country which has provided me with many opportunities, freedoms and protections to help me make progress in life. And I think that if you have that kind of mentality, I think in a sense that when I have faced those more turbulent stages of life, if you could call it that, I do genuinely believe mate, there are billions of people who are nowhere near as fortunate as me. And I think that when you look at it that way, and many of them still manage to have a smile on their face. And I think when you look at things that way, it gives you that mental strength to really crack on, in my view. What a brilliant note to end it on. Dr. Akiba-san, thank you so much, mate, for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. A big thank you to Rakib for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. I will put some links to where you can buy a copy of Beyond Grievance and follow Rakib on social media in the show notes as always. I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at event and want to support us further, you can go to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show on Friday, September 29th, 2023 at the Eton Manor Rugby Club in North East London. All of those links are on our link tree. That's www.linktr.com ee slash vent help uk we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent <laughs> <laughs>